Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. We have a great, important show for you today. And if you clicked onto this because you saw the title, I hope that you'll hang around here and listen to the entirety of this interview with Dr. Janet Dean as we talk through some of the challenges of our time, particularly as it relates to a pastoral response to those who are dealing with gender dysphoria. But before we do that, I want to make sure you know that this podcast comes to you because of the ministry of Wesley Bill biblical seminary where we exist to develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. And that happens through a host of programs from our undergraduate degree program in pastoral ministry to a variety of master's degrees to a doctorate of ministry program and a couple of lay initiatives that if you're just somebody who wants to like teach Sunday school better, we'd love to help you become a better leader, a more trusted leader for your congregation. So check us out at wbs.edu. And also I'm thankful to WPO Development that is led by Keith Waters. They're a group of people who help churches, organizations, schools develop strategic plans, mission planning studies, and actualize capital campaigns. They've done this successfully for more than 250 groups in the United States. So I highly recommend them to you. You can check them out on my, in my show notes. There'll be a link there, or you can just Google WPO Development. And finally, I have a resource that's available for people who join my email list. So you have to join my email list to get this resource. And it's five steps to deeper preaching and teaching. And it's just a, a, a way that I walk through the inductive Bible study method with the aim of helping people creatively present and preach what they've learned. So I would love to share it with you. It's a 45-minute video teaching and then an eight-page PDF document. So you get that for free if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Well, I am glad to welcome into the podcast my friend, Dr. Janet Dean. Janet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to see you, Andy. It's good to be well, with it's you. It's good to see you. Now, you were on my former podcast, and people can still find that in my archives, my Captain's Corner podcast, which was just audio, but now we have it even better. We have video and audio. So I'm really <laughs> glad to have you. We talked about a paper that you presented um, that you uh, co-written at that time. And so I inv invite people to go take a look at that. But Janet, before we get going now, people already saw the subject. They know what we're going to talk about, but let me tell us a little bit about yourself that gets us into like even how you approach this topic, what you do, yeah. what your ministry is at this point. Right. So I am a licensed psychologist here in the state of Kentucky. I am professor of pastoral counseling at Asbury Theological Seminary, and I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. All right. So I wear those three hats together. And even though you haven't taught a class, an adjunct professor at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Yes, yes, <laughs> definitely. And I'm excited about that. Someday we'll get you in there. So, so that, so now and you just made the move actually from Asbury University, Asbury Seminary. Is is that in part related to your calling? Like you mentioned, it's a you not maybe when people heard that you're a past, uh, professor of pastoral counseling, they didn't expect to hear you say I'm a Nazarene minister as well. So, t tell me about that shift. What's that been like for you? Right, I I think you know early on I had a call to ministry on my life that I kind of walked away from, and I've. I've been expressing that in psychology and therapy with people. And over the years, God just keeps calling me back, right? The work <laughs> that we do in psychology is important, but true healing comes through a relationship with Christ. And, and so I've just felt myself pulled back toward the church. You know, it's not that I was away from the church or away from spiritual things, right. but I really have shifted my focus to be in this place where I'm in ministry as a counselor, as a pastoral counselor, not as a psychologist, even though I'm still a psychologist. Yes. Right. You can't just leave that at the door. Like, oh, I'm exactly. no longer a psychologist. But tell <laughs> us a little bit. You've done a lot of research and tell us about the areas that you have primarily worked in or maybe what's been an emphasis for you the last few years. Right. So for probably almost 18 years now, wow. I have been doing um, work around primarily sexual identity and faith in students on Christian colleges or college campuses. We maybe two years ago, three years ago, uh, transitioned that to some degree to gender identity, mm -hmm. although we still do sexual identity. Uh, so we've done multiple studies over the years looking at 
how students um, understand themselves, how they express their sexual identity, what their campus experience has been like, how they fit uh, their sexuality together with their faith, and what that process, what that developmental process looks like for them. And so that's the work that we're continuing in. Um, more recently, we've been talking about um, what does a healthy pathway look like for development as people learn to hold these things together. We um, just wrote a book on stewardship of sexual identity, okay. and that will come out next year. We're currently working, I'm sorry, not a book, a chapter in a book. We're currently working on another chapter, uh, helping pastors to minister to families who have children who come out. And so we're really in this space. How do we help the church to walk with people in this process? Now, you said we a couple of times there. Who is the we? Is that you and yes. your husband, Kevin, or is that you and uh, like our research partners? Well, Kevin is my prim primary supporter, right? My biggest cheerleader. But the research is done with Mark Yarhouse at Wheaton College and Steve Stratton, who's also here at Asbury Seminary. Gotcha. And that, that's we, been, uh, you guys have put a few things out. So this one that's coming out is, make sure I get it right. It's just a chapter. It's a chapter and this, and it's built upon the research that you've done. Yes, it's a chapter in Perry Glanzer's book. Uh, it's really looking at student affairs. So faith okay. and student affairs on college campuses. But I think that stewardship chapter has the potential to really help people broadly. Um, people, particularly people whose faith matters to them as they try to figure out how to make sense of their um, sexual and gender identity. Now, you said something as you were talking through what that research is, and particularly these recent studies, you said holding these things, or maybe, maybe I have exact, or like bringing, uh, bringing these things together, these things. What are these things that you're referring to? I think this is like, this is the challenge, okay, to, to name what the, these things are like we have tensions yes. that we're holding and you as you enter into practice as you interview people as you research there are things that are held so tell us about like what what right. are we holding so if I, i'm talking about the person who identifies as a sexual or gender minority and i use that term minority not in the political sense but i use it to um, kind of capture everyone who would say that they have a you know, a sexual orientation other than heterosexual, or they have a gender identity other than that that matches their biological sex or their sex assigned at birth. Uh, and, and there are people in the church who would fit into one of those categories, but they choose not to use the LGBTQ label. And so that's why I'm using that term. So for them, right, for these people who are Christians, but they also find themselves as a sexual or gender minority. It's how do they hold those two boxes together? Gotcha. So we, we use this uh, metaphor, if you will, of a college student moving onto campus. And you can imagine that they, you know, when they move in, they have all these boxes hmm. and imagine that one box is faith and one box is sexual or gender identity. And they're trying to carry both boxes up the stairs together, right? What does that look like? How does that yeah. work for them? And um, what we found is that by and large, they don't want to set one of those boxes down. Hmm. And so it's only 5% will say, you know, my faith is a problem for me. So I'm going to set it down or my sexual gender identity is a problem for me. I'm going to set it down. 95% of students want to find a way to hold these together hmm. and how they hold it then to some degree determines their outcome. So that's the students, but I would also using another metaphor, saying that those of us who walk with people, that we're in that same place of tension yes. where we have our faith and our theological beliefs on one side, and we have our love for people who are sexual or gender minorities. And I'm going to say on the other side, although I don't think these are as opposite as we tend to think they are, but we do feel this tension in between those. And if you can imagine being on a journey with these folks and we want to stay on that journey and that highway, right? Uh, I would say it's the highway of grace, if you mm -hmm. will. And it's that pathway where they're going to figure out how to, um, how to live their life in a way that uh, is obedient to God with the reality of their sexual and gender identity. 
to walk with them, we have to stay on the highway, but the highway, there's tension and there's obstacles and it's storming and there's construction and people are driving crazy and it's so stressful and we feel that tension and we just don't want to live in that tension. Yeah. And for many of us, we'll say, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. And so we'll try to get off, off the highway as quickly as possible, find the nearest exit ramp. Right. And some of us will take it exit ramp off into faith or religion into our theological beliefs. And we almost hide behind those and that prevents relationship. Mm-hmm. Others of us will take an off ramp into, I want to say love or affirmation. We just want to care about people. And we do that to the exclusion of theology, mm-hmm. right? We might even compromise our theology, but we take an off ramp in either direction to ease our tension. Yeah. But I think what we need to do when we walk with people is to live there in that tension to help them figure out how they're going to live in that place. Yeah. This is a really good illustration. And I encourage people who are listening if to go back a couple of seconds and listen to Jana unfold this idea of like being on a highway, a highway of grace where there's the various obstacles and things. And I heard you tell this, that use that illustration a few weeks ago when you made a presentation that I heard and it, it, I, you even use some hand motions, like it kind of like swerving the car and I, it, it, it impacted me because that is a tendency. And that's what you see people do. Just, I don't want to deal with that. Okay. I'm going to just say it's all a sin and it's, it's awful. And I don't want to deal with it. Or I'm going to say I'm fully accepting, but you're encouraging people to stay on this highway. That's you might right. have to swerve and miss things here and there. And you also, when I heard you and, and I want to encourage people you might not have time in your schedule. I know you've been speaking a lot lately, but to bring Janet to a conference or a church to share, maybe she can do it just virtually. But um, you shared some statistics that were hard to hear, honestly, Janet, about yes. uh, the nature of how or how many people in a certain age group are expressing now i actually let me back up just a second i want to hear about those stats but i appreciate some people are critical of the term gender minority gender minority yes. and I, I think sometimes i've heard that and i like mm, let's be be cautious but i like the fact that you're using it and you said this is something that's different if they don't want to express use the lgbtq label so that gender minority just is a way to describe what they're saying so thank you for giving me that clarity do you want to say anything about that and then we'll get to the stats yeah, I, I, I want to use the term that is most inclusive of people, of the, the biggest number of people. And I, I think if we use the LGBTQ term, we're really limiting it to the people who are stepping into that identity. They're taking that identity label and they're saying, this is me. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people on, I'm going to say on the margins, there are a lot of people of faith, a lot of people in the church who share some things in common with those in the LGBTQ community, but they don't want to take on that label. It doesn't fit for them. Mm, Interesting. And and so how do we represent them? That's what that word, what that term minority is meant to to do there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not meant to give somebody a status as if that is what they're meant to be. Right. Right. In that. um, Sorry. I, 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 like, I want to even be really careful. Like, in, in this conversation that if I said that in a way that's like overly uh, like pushy, like I, I want, I want to be cautious because I know people are probably checking into this podcast because um, they are dealing with some, they have a friend or a family member who's working through these issues. And I don't, I don't want even that to come off too aggressive. Like, nevertheless, you share the same theological and biblical convictions that I have, but you come at it from a different discipline. And I've always been benefited from hearing you talk through this. Okay. Back to the stats. Um, So we are where we are now. We won't be able to go through all the ones you have to bring Janet and pay her $15,000 pay her her, definitely to come, but uh, still all the stats are too much, but tell me some of these more, more recent ones that are, are troubling for us. Right. So I think probably the ones that are the most troubling come from the Gallup poll that was just done in February of 2022. So really just, you know, half a year ago for us where we are now. And you think about the past 10 years. So from 2011 to 2021, 
right? The number of people who identify as LGBT in our society doubled in that 10 years. And it was relatively stable up to about 2015. Then we start to see it inch up. And then, you know, from 2020 to 2021, it increased a point and a half percentage and a half. So we're very quickly approaching 10% of all adults in the United States identifying as a sexual or gender minority, one out of 10. If if people think you don't have one of these folks in your church, you do. These are our people and and they are in the church. But I think out of that study, you know, we can think one out of 10, well, that's a lot of people. That doesn't include the other 7% who say, well, I'm not really straight cisgendered, um, but I'm not really LGBT. So there's another 7% who we would say they're other, right, Mm -hmm. somehow. But I think the most disturbing thing that came out of this for me is what's happening in our younger people. Yeah. You know, you look at my generation, um, I'm Gen X. It was only about 4% of my generation that would identify as LGBT. The millennials where my older son is, is about 10%, 10 10.5%. The Gen Zs, so just the adults, because these these kids are still in high school. So don't think about the high schoolers, think about the college age and beyond Gen Zers, right? Born 1996 to 2010. Okay. Those kids, 21% identify as LGBTQ. One out of five. Wow. So this is, I mean, you talk about your generation and I'm somewhere kind of in the middle of millennial Gen Xers. I don't know what you call me. um, 1980, (laughs) that's my year. So never, so like (laughs) still from our generation to those, that generation's kids from 4% to 20%. Yes. <sighs> wow. Radical, radical change that we're seeing. And then you even and, said that the, the views too are um, above 50% people and even who claim to be evangelical, call, call them identified evangelical, um, are affirming of the, the broad scope of LGBT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So in the general population, you know, middle-aged adults are at about 72% support same-sex marriage. Younger adults, 84% support same-sex wow. marriage. So in evangelicals, you know, you would expect us to be more conservative and more traditional around marriage. And you do see that. So I this the stat is only from about age 18 to age 49. So it's most, you know, adults, younger and middle-aged. of evangelicals support same-sex marriage. If you would look at the younger people in college, we would probably be up over 60% now Mm -hmm. among evangelicals supporting same-sex marriage. So the views are changing and they're changing quickly. Wow. So this all like people's perception and all these things impact the way we enter in to serving people. If we're like, like we said earlier, trying to hold this tension of not taking the off ramps on the highway of grace. Um, talk to me too, like the, the, the gender dysphoric issues of our time, man, I'm, I'm not using the right words again. I feel the, the, the concerns we have, like of helping people on that highway that what, can you give us some general <laughs> advice of how we can serve people here? Like particularly those who would be in that percent, percentage who would say, no, this isn't God's best for your life. Um, if somebody's child is, um, it, maybe they're 18, maybe they're 15. Of course, some of this is happening. Okay. I'm, I'm going to drop back to another question. I was headed towards another one, but how much of this is like a, a and, and forgive this language, social contagion. Like is, is that, is that in, a part of the issue, like similar to anorexia or cutting particularly young women in, uh, teenage girls, is that part of what we're dealing with, with getting up to that 20%? Is that, it's a peer thing. I think it's a piece of it. I think we need to be really careful not to blame that entirely. Okay. So there was a study that came out uh, in 2018 by uh, Lisa Whitman, and mm-hmm. uh, she was looking at rapid or sudden onset of gender dysphoria, where people feel that incongruence and it causes distress for them. Um, 
among teenage girls. And, and she found well, one, I think it's really almost alarming finding to me, teenage girls are showing the fastest increase in occurrence of gender dysphoria than any other group. And to say that from 2007 to 2017, it increased 4,400%. Oh my goodness. That's rapid increase in 10 years. And so among these teenage girls, what's going on? So in Whitman's study, she interviewed the parents. So she didn't talk to the girls, she talked to the parents. And it was around 80 to 85% of those parents said, well, we noticed a couple of things in our kids before, in our daughters before this happened. And they said either they had in the month prior to coming out a significant increase in social media use. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's primarily TikTok. Um, or they belong to a peer group in which someone else in the group came out right before them. Now, and then the, the, some of the parents said, well, it was both of those things. Right. So it's came out either, as a different gender, not came out as lesbian or bisexual. Right. right. So it's either social media, your peers or both, right? As right. what parents, upwards of 85%, that's what wow. they were seeing. And those peer groups are really interesting. Um, uh, talking to Brian Hall, who is a youth ministry um, expert professor at, the, at Asbury University, uh, he was explaining to me that um, in today's world, young people, they function in these little cliques and it, they're not cliques like, you know, older people like me had when we were in school, but these are groups of three to five young people who live life together. They're extremely close. They do everything together. They think the same way. They operate the same way. They have a shared identity almost. Mm. And so if one comes out as gender diverse, then the other ones probably will too, mm. um, because they do everything together. And that, and that's what we're partly what we're seeing here. Uh, Littman went on, she, she offered a couple of explanations. Um, Mark Yarhouse offers some ex- explanations of this. And social contagion is one of those explanations, right? that it does seem like somehow we are, um, if you will, as we watch other people express themselves in these ways, then it becomes more likely that we express ourselves in this way. Um, We also have to think about though human experience. Human experience is diverse Mm -hmm. and our understanding of gender roles tends to be rigid sometimes, particularly in the church. Mm-hmm. And so we do have people who don't fit well into the way that we think about being men and women just primarily. The other thing that we're seeing is this um, kind of self-awareness where, where children and teenagers are able to say, this is how I feel. So this must be true. Mm-hmm. This must be my reality. Right. Uh, Carl Truman in his book says it's the psychological self, right? Right. right. Reality is how I feel on in the inside. It's not anything external or physical. It's how I psychologically feel. And right. so we're seeing that. Um, we also, uh, your house talks about in one of his books, um, he refers to Ian Hacking's looping effect, where he says, you know, medical professionals like those of us in psychology will watch people, we'll see what they're doing, we'll put labels on them. And then people go, hmm, okay, but that label doesn't exactly fit me. I think that maybe I'm more like this and they create a new label. And so we pull those together and go, oh, look, here are all these labels. We, we need to be more diverse in the way we think about this. And then we put those back on people. And then the people say, well, wait a second, I don't fit those labels. And so you get this back and forth process where the labels, you know, expand and expand and expand to fit the nuances of everyone's experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they refer to as that kind of looping effect. So all of these things seem to be at play. There's some biology, there's some experience. I would, I would tell you, we don't know exactly in, in any one person. Right. It's some mixture of all of this and it's unique yeah. to them. 
Yeah. So it's not just a social contagion contagion. So like right. and that that's a, a helpful to and it's kind of easy to say it makes sense like there's something socially that's happening in the system that then catches on with other people. So that's an easy way to think about. I appreciate you nuancing it like that there's experiences that come into play. Who knows any host of experiences. And then of course biological biological realities too. So I think that's really helpful to see the wide way this is described. Let's think about the the um, young women, particularly who are experiencing this, like, let's say this has happened um, in like, I don't know if you like that. There's a, what, what, what do you recommend when you're talking to parents who are dealing with a, a teenage girl, 15 year old girl, who's maybe has a little bit of all of this. Like it's a, it's a social factor connect, connected to social media, but then maybe there's some physical realities. Um, how, how do we start to, how do we, where do we even start Janet? Well, I think we start on the way of grace. Yes, we start with love and biblical truth, right? And and but we start with relationship in the midst of that. And so, you know, if a if a young girl, if I were if I had a daughter and she came out to me, I would hope that the first thing that I would do would be to love her and to honor her and to thank her for trusting me to share her story. Right? Okay. And it's a really big deal for kids to come out to their parents. Yeah. Particularly if they know that their parents are, you know, religious and hold certain faith beliefs. This is, it's scary sometimes for kids. Right. And uh, I want to honor the importance of that disclosure first and foremost. I, I think there, and, and as parents, I always, I want to tell them, Remember your child is on a developmental journey. Okay. And not everything has to be decided in one conversation. Okay. And not everything has to be talked about in one conversation. Okay. And so slow down <laughs> and let's let's allow our child to tell their story first. And as we walk with them, there will be opportunity to talk about faith and to do discipleship and all of those things. But first, listen. Mm. Here's what happens. Here's what I've seen happen a few times is that people will take that approach and then move to the direction where say, ideologically, philosophically, theologically, well, that's their truth. And I see parents make the shift with it. So I'm not, I'm not resistant <laughs> to you saying that, but I mean, that's, that's why I feel like the, not the danger, but that's my concern in the midst of that. But still, this is a trajectory. And so we can still hold this without giving in. I mean, is that we, ha we have to enter into that danger. Like if we believe this is the truth, um, we have to be willing to be untrue, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always think about, you know, the same scripture that holds up these theological understandings of sexuality and gender also calls us to radical love. Mm -hmm. It's the same scripture. And, and that's what we're trying to hold together. Um, I, I think we do, you know, we do this well in all kinds of other ways. We talk about other things and our child, you know, maybe, you know, doing something that we don't approve of at all. But we learn how to love them and we learn how to set boundaries and we learn how to engage that conversation and help them. But there's something about sexuality and gender that it, it makes us so nervous or so afraid that those skills that we have in other parts of our life as a parent, we have a really hard time applying here. Right. So if we're if we're on a journey, we want to be able to apply these other skills, which we've already learned as a parent that we're on a journey with them trying, what can we, is it possible to really bring people back uh, to like, so we, we're going to affirm it all along the way that we affirm <laughs> the best life that God has for someone is to live into their biological gender. Um, what are some steps after we've listened, after we are sympathetic and, and, and trying to be in a situation where we're hearing their story to try to move them in a place where they live into God's best for their life. So I think the, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is I want to get some mental health or mental health help for my okay. child. Uh, I want to be very careful about who I get. Um, I want someone who is, um, 
I would say someone who's a Christian who doesn't just say they're a Christian therapist, but they actually integrate faith into the work that they're doing um, to walk with my child. Um, I want to talk to my child about um, kind of what they're experiencing and then what are the, I, I, I want to say the most minimal ways space that we can give the child to express that, right? Like if I have a daughter and she wants to wear hoodies all the time, do I, that's not really worth me arguing about, right? Okay. Um, or she wants to cut her hair short. That's not really worth me arguing. So where are the line? Like what's the, the least amount of gender non-conforming behavior that my child needs to, to kind of be comfortable with where they're at? And am I, is that okay with me? Am I willing to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that needs to be negotiated some, um, you know, there are places that I personally would draw the line at, but I know every family is different and every situation is different. So I don't want to, um, dictate for other people where they would draw their line. Um, but I, I think as I'm thinking about this, I want to help put some boundaries in place that allow my child to kind of figure this out right? Within boundaries and with help, um, but also to be in this discipleship process, learning who they are in Christ Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how they were created. Um, Understanding, right? The research shows us that almost 75% of these young people will, um, the language we use is desist, right? That they, they will return to a gender identity that matches their biological sex. And so if that's true, my child there's a a high likelihood that that's going to be their story. Yeah. You know, there's always the likelihood that that's not going to be their story, but, and so how do we kind of walk with them during, in this process, you know, in, in around the gender dysphoria, um, there does seem to be more psychological distress than we see with other things. And so it does make you wonder how much of that teenage angst um, and some of the other things that kids experience are getting directed in this direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, sure. But, um, but I just want to go step at a time. I do want to have boundaries in place. I, I do want to continue engaging in Christian education and discipleship that includes talking about sexuality and gender. Um, but I always want to be loving and respectful and, and moving my child down that journey. It seems like one of those lines that probably can't shouldn't be crossed in teenage years, and this is why it's such a hot topic, is related to surgeries, right? That you know to, to not do some sort of work or damage that it can't be um, changed. I mean, that you could dramatically impact your life. Like I'm really thankful that some of the things I felt um, as a teenager, I like no, like if I would have made a decision for that would impact my life there and as dramatically related to my body that could be really damaging so i'm i like i imagine that that's one of the pieces that comes up quickly um but particularly as it relates to somebody who's a teenager yeah i that one's been um interesting to me i struggle uh, moving in the direction that we would do anything to our physical bodies that might have permanent effects yeah. Um, and so that's where I, I'm going to, I would be very slow to endorse something like that, even though my field of psych, psychology would be pretty quick to endorse something like that. Right. You know, so it puts me a little bit at odds there. Um, you say slow. I mean, would you ever endorse it? Uh, I don't, I don't know that I would. Yeah. Right. Um, when I'm working as a therapist though, it's not about my values, right? right? If I'm outside of the church working as a therapist, I don't get to make that decision for people. That's that's not my decision to make, but when I'm working as a pastor, this is something that I can more directly speak into. Mm -hmm. So it depends which hat I'm wearing at the time, Um, which I know it makes it, it very difficult. This is a, it's a, you know, there's so much contention and we all want what's best for people. Right. Um, the argument that I have heard though, both in the mental health community and in the church okay, about this is if we don't allow people to take hormones or to have surgery or to do these things, to move further in that direction, 
then they will die by suicide. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of the threat that's been out out there. And I I just heard it yesterday, as a matter of fact. And we have to take the potentiality of suicide very, very seriously. And when we're working with people, and we know that folks with gender dysphoria are a high risk for this, I need to be doing what I can to make sure that they're safe. I don't know that the only way to make sure that they're safe is to give in to some of the hormonal treatments and some of the other things. So that's where I'm going to push back a little bit. And you and I have talked about this before in other conversations and you hinted at it here a little bit, like some of the things like, uh, things that you're willing to permit or, or particularly as a parent, um, to allow that might be uncomfortable. And like, you might not support even, um, theologically that are as damaging as like, say having one, an operation, but maybe it's allowing somebody to express themselves, um, with their clothing in a way that you're not comfortable with, but that's, that's the type of thing that remembering you're on a journey, right. That we're trying to slowly kind of move people that, that you might put, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to avoid saying put up with, but like, you know, like <laughs> trying to, you, you know, the words I'm trying to say here, like try, trying to create space for somebody to have a journey toward healing. Yes. And I think that's, what's hard for us because it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's scary. And, you know, but I also think every generation of parents has had to allow their kids to explore, you know, different hair styles and different clothing right. styles and that sort of thing. So in some ways this isn't new in other ways it is new. And I, I think when we move to this area of gender and biological sex, we're moving into an area that um, is related to our very created nature and being created in the image of God. Yes. Right? So it feels weightier than just, are they going to wear a dress or pants? Are they going to, you know, there's right. a, there's a weight, there's a heaviness. There's a, there are significant implications for this that, that make our decisions feel much more significant. Now, the one area that, that has come up that I've had friends express this to me is related to residential experiences that people have, like, let's say a summer camp environment and particularly for a group. And you, you know, Janet, that I'm connected to the Salvation Army. We have more than 30 camps across the country. And it's not just like um, a church kid camp necessarily trying to go for people to get people in particularly those who are, are struggling with financially. Maybe they come in through our programs, not through our church, but maybe through a Christmas giving program. So people come and we want to have a posture of leading children to Christ. It's actually been one of the places that we've, um, you know, we, we could probably account in the Salvation Army, the most number of conversions happens through our summer camping program. So <laughs> There's a sense if you want to be black and white, they come. A lot of people come in sinners there, right? And then they 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 leave as Christians. And so that's the 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 reason that we have that. So if we're going to be welcoming to people, particularly those who we're trying to walk with on this highway of grace, how how can we deal with these practical dimensions at a summer camp? Like it seems like this is coming head on at us, and like it's not easy for us to develop. Cause like, do we have separate rooms? Like, and then if you put people, if you have like a, a trans room, like, well, what is their actual biological sex? Do we have a train, like a trans room for those who are biologically male identifying as females? I mean, have you thought about this much? Like what, what this looks like in the residential environment? I would say just this summer, I started getting last spring, tons of questions about this very thing. But think about this. If one out of five of our young people right? Our LGBT. If you say, well, we're just not going to accept any of those folks in camp. It means 20% of kids you're saying we have no space for you. Mm-hmm. We can't, we can't do that. That's just not an option. We need these children to hear about Christ. And, and so I think, and, and I know that there are some church camps that they're going to say, really, we're not ready to deal with this. And that's going to be their decision. And, and I know that there are reasons to make that decision. But when we take this more evangelistic approach, I want at least, I think we need to think about how do we get as many people in to hear about Christ as we possibly can. 
And so then it becomes a matter, okay, how are we going to do this? Sleeping arrangements matter. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe it is that you separate out, you know, that you've got, you know, a room for gender non-binary or gender queer, gender fluid, however, you know, or trans girls and trans. Okay, help fluid, me with that. You know? I don't understand that language. <laughs> what is gender queer? I mean, uh, uh, forgive me. I just want to, you're the person yeah. I can ask these questions to. Yeah. So gender, gender queer, gender non-binary typically mean that someone, um, either identifies both as male and female, you know, sometimes they'll say one day I wake up and I feel this way. And then, you know, another day I wake up and I feel this way. One day I feel like a woman and another day I feel like a man, or it means I never really identify with either of those. I feel like I'm somewhere. And I want to, I don't even want to say in between because sometimes people feel like they're not even on that scale. Okay. Right. That, that same continuum. And so gender queer is just another word for that. Okay. Gender fluid will kind of capture moving back and forth. So it's just some of the language that's a little bit different than kids who would, who would identify as transgender. Those children would say, well, I'm the op, my gender identity is opposite of my biological sex, but they're still within that gender binary. Okay, this is going to be another elementary type of question. Yeah. So like LGBTQ, generally that is, is that referring to sexual identification then? Like the queer Q, the Q there, is that like a, a switching? But I mean- the, the T and the Q generally are about gender. So the T would be transgender. Okay. The Q would be queer. Gotcha. We're questioning that sort of thing. Sometimes the Q is also meant for sexual identity. And so- it, it really depends who you're talking to. I always ask people if they give me a label for themselves, <laughs> tell me what that label means for you. Right, right. So in, in terms of this, you know, housing, how do you do housing? Right, right. I think in some ways we're safer when we have bigger sleeping areas where you have more people because less bad things can happen in mm-hmm. that way. Um, if children come in with a group of kids, I want to, I really want to try to use naturally existing friendships because their families are probably okay with those kids hanging out with these kids. And I don't have to negotiate that. Um, You know, we've, I've talked to some groups where they have decided to put on their application form. Are you okay with your child having um, a sexual or sexual or gender minority in the room with them? Um, and allowing parents to designate that ahead of time. So you don't have to come back afterwards and say, hey, so-and-so is, you know, uh, gender non-binary. Are you okay if they're in the room with your child? But you ask ahead of time, would you be okay if this happened? And then you can start to divide children like that. Um, But so I want to take naturally existing groups. I want to think ahead because I don't want to have to out anybody, if you will, um, I really like the idea of more open bay barracks, sort of, um, that just in a lot of ways, because you have adult presence in those and it feels a little bit safer, um, bathroom facilities. Yes. I might, I might think about shifting bathroom times, you know, so you shift the times in the shower. And so if you have a child who is trans, they, they take a shower, you know, 15 minutes after this other group. Do you know what I mean? So you begin to shift um, because obviously it's going to be hard to build new shower um, quarters or shower spaces for people. But, um, but can you manipulate the schedule in such a way that you can create space without it feeling like people are getting special privileges? So the big question for me, and I just think I have 11 year old daughter um, and and I think I have, an openness, <laughs> I think, even somebody saying, and me asking this question demonstrates that I don't, I don't know. But so to to uh, creating space like that, I think my tendency would be to say, though, if I have no interest, <laughs> I need to talk to my wife about this. She might change my mind. But in a biological male being in any room, no matter the age, with my with my daughter, um, so like I. I, I could create space if there's a biological female who feels like she is a man and like wanting to um, 
uh, dress that way, take showers at a different time, try to trying to come up with space for that. Um, but that's where I think the tension would be for me. I'm just, I'm very cautious now. Help me here, Janet. Is that, is that something that I just need to change? I don't know. I, that's a conviction I feel like I'd want to hold. Right. Right. I, I think part of that conviction, right. Is that we want to protect our kids. Right. And, for sure. And I, I would say that a lot of these trans girls, which would be the biological okay, male thank you. Thank who you. understands himself as a girl, um, are not going to be the type of person who who would hurt another girl. Typically, that's not what we see. Obviously, there's always exceptions and we can never judge when this is the, the exception or not. I mean, it's hard to, to know. Um, and so I, I want to think about creating safety for them biggest for everybody. So safety for everybody. And so could it be that this trans girl has friends who come with her to camp? She would identify as a her. Okay. And And, and this is a, I'm sorry, this is a biological male. Biological male. Forgive me. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, And maybe there are friends who are already okay with this. They've already had sleepovers. And so those are the kids that you would put in the room with that person. Okay. Interesting. That's what I would look, that's what I would look at. Or I would think about if you have, a, you know, open bay barracks and you've got 30 kids in there, you, putting a trans girl in there is not really a risk to the other girls, right? Just not at that yeah. point. Um, you know, and the same would be true with a trans, a trans boy. If you put him who's biologically female in a group of you know, boys, this is probably going to be safe, particularly if it's a large group where you have an adult presence in there Um, or with people that he hangs out with most of the time. And you'll notice I am trying to use the pronouns that the children would use for themselves. Um, And we can debate that. And in some church places, we wouldn't do that. In other places, we would. I think I make the choice to do that because um, if changing my language that much opens up a relationship for further discipleship, then that's a small, that's a place where I'm willing to compromise to build gotcha. relationship. Um, but not everybody is, and that's okay. Right. So our, let's just stay on that for a second. I want to come back to the dorm room situation, yeah. but the, so in, in that case, when you're using the, the preferred pronoun and I'm with you, like, I, like, I think in principle, like in the truth, I'm not going to, I'm not going to believe in any way that that person is the opposite gender. Like I'm going to hold to that truth, but I don't think it's necessarily a lie for me to call them what they're preferring to be called in that moment. So uh, I'm with you there at the, at the same time. Do you, um, I know this is probably an individual basis and this is what everybody is dealing with these days. Uh, do you say, I want you to know like this would be, this would be my approach. And this might mm-hmm. be wrong. So I want you to know, I believe that you're, you're if it's a, a bi- biological male, I'm going to say, I believe you're a male, but I will call you she, you know, just because that's what you're asking me to do. I want to honor our friendship in, in that. It, it, critique yeah. me there. Is that right? Is that right? Should I even do that? <laughs> I would say when in the relationship, does it become, I would say natural for you to do that? right? If I just meet somebody the first day I meet them, I'm going to use their preferred pronouns, but I'm probably not going to say that. But if this is somebody that I've been walking with for a while and they know that I care about them, then there's going to be more space to say that. So for me, it really depends on the nature of the relationship that I have with someone. Um, And if I know someone well, and if we're journeying together, there will be those conversations. Right. right? Um, But they will come when it's when I have permission to have those conversations with them. Yeah. So you don't start off by saying like, all right, we just <laughs> met. And by the way, since you are this way, you know, exactly, I will not refer to you, but let's have a good friendship now. You know, it's not probably not going to happen that way. It's probably not going to happen that it's probably not going to happen that way, but you also have to be careful parents. I mean, if I'm in a church and the parents absolutely not, we are not using these other pronouns for my child then I am going to respect the parents. Okay. Um, but that will probably then be a conversation with the child. 
Right. I know that these are your preferred pronouns. Your mom and dad have asked us to do this. And so I'm going to honor them, but I'm, I'm here if you ever want to talk, right. I, I, I just want you to know that I see you and I know your request. Gotcha. Okay. In, in, in your, your, but in that situation, you're going to honor, you're going to follow the parents lead. I, Uh, I probably am. Yeah. Yeah, I, that sounds great. Now, with the situation then uh, for parents, what what do you advise parents? I mean, I know it's based on the relationship. You're entering into a situation where you're engaged them and you want to be on this path, the trajectory of getting to a place where somebody is connected to their bio, like identifies their biological gender. But the, a parent who grew up and they they were the first ones to see that this was a boy and not a girl. Um, I imagine it's it's pretty hard for them to get in that place. What do you advise parents with the pronoun matter? Again, every situation <laughs> is different. And I I really am thinking about, as I said earlier, what are the most minimal accommodations we can make okay. to help my child deal with some of the distress that they're feeling? Yeah. And if this accommodation takes care of a whole lot of that distress, I may try to do it, but I know other parents who say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, we might try another accommodation. You know, I don't care. My daughter can dress like a boy if she wants, but I'm still going to call her a she, that may be the way another family does that. So, right. That's helpful. Um, okay. So can we go back to the dorm room situation? So (laughs) I I, I really appreciate you giving me space to talk about this. Um, I, in that case, like the big thing I can't comes to, to dressing, like I can't help, but get beyond on that concern, like of, of somebody undressing and being a female or being a male in a group of women and somebody of the opposite gender, help me, help me think through that. Like, I, I feel like that, is that where you use those guidelines of doing things a little differently as scheduling? Do you schedule dressing in that situation? That's, that's what I would do. I would try to think about how do we get privacy for all kids to right. some extent. Um, and if that's not possible, can we do shift changes? You know, like you've got 10 minutes change. You've got, you know, you've got 30 kids in a room, 10 of them, you've got you know, or five of them, you've got five minutes change, then you're out, then the next five go in because then they can hide in the different places and change privately, right? And to just do those quick shift changes to allow that to happen, to minimize, yeah, to minimize exposure to one another. That's what I would do. Now, I'm I'm sure that there are churches out there and campgrounds out there that have figured out other ways to manage this. Right. You know, I hear about that the extra bathroom that some, that these kids can use. I hear, you know, about a separate shower facility. So it really depends on what's available. Gotcha. Wow. This is so heavy and so important <laughs> to work through this. We don't have time. I really wanted to hit, like talk about the teenager kid sort of situation, but is there much different than when you're dealing with somebody uh, who's an adult? who's over 18 or somebody like what difference considerations should we have for adults? Mm-hmm. Uh, adults have more freedom to do what they want, regardless of whatever people around them say. Um, I, I do think when you have an adult who comes out um, particularly with another gender identity, that this changes family dynamics, mm-hmm. relational dynamics in a way that might be more significant than a child does. And if I'm a pastor, then I need to think about not only how do I walk with that person, but how do I walk with this entire family who it, it, to some degree has just had their world turned upside down right, right, as they're trying to figure this out. Because what, what happens to a marriage Right. What do I now call my parents? Like what name do I use for them? Uh, so much begins to shift and change that they're they're They are going to need pastoral support, right. And identifying the losses and grieving those losses and figuring out new ways to live with that change. Mm. Um, 
you know, adults, if I have a relationship with them, this is another place we can do discipleship, you know, and if this is true about you, that you feel this way, that you, this is your experience, that there's, that you, you feel this discordance, this incongruence significantly mm-hmm. enough in your body that you feel like you have to do something about it. Let's talk about how you hold that together with your faith. Right. And I think that becomes a question about stewardship at that point. Yeah. So th- this is like a, a stewardship in the sense of like, it's a stewardship of a relationship. Is that the idea? Like, like how you, or what do you mean by stewardship? I know you have a chapter coming out in this, but I'm curious. I think the stewardship of our bodies, a uh, stewardship of our identity. Um, you know, um, my friend, Christopher Ewan, he, right. he has this line, he says, um, this is how you are in the world, but it's not who you are. And both of those are realities. Who we are is who we are in Christ, but how we are in the world is about gender and sexuality and race and ethnicity and, you know, uh, professional identity and all those other things. And they matter, but they, and they do matter and they shape who we are and they shape our faith, but they're not who we are. And so helping someone to kind of figure that out to kind of, what does this mean for me? This is how I am in the world, right? but this is who I am in Christ. How then do I live? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So could you, what resources, uh, we don't, I, mean, I have a, about 15 more questions and we're out of time, but <laughs> it, where, where can people go? Can you recommend some uh, websites or books that people could read to help right, them around- as they're working through this? Yeah, the, the gender dysphoria or the gender identities, um, I would tell you, uh, my colleague, Mark Yarhouse, probably has the best books. Yeah, I think one of the earliest Christian books on gender dysphoria. And so I would start there, but he also has um, a new book on emerging gender identities. And I think there's a uh, gender identity and faith that would be great for people to look at. He also um, related to the chapter that we're working on right now. Um, he has a book uh, that just came out. Like, I don't even know if you can get it yet. I have a copy, but I don't even know if it's available to the general public. It might still be pre-order, but it's um, when children come out, right? And it's really, how do you help, how do parents um, come alongside their kids and help them in this process? And it's, uh, I think that book would be a tremendous resource for parents. And, and that's not, so, so Mark, your household, you know, holds a biblical worldview and mm-hmm. isn't, um, that's not like just research. This is, a, is that book, the idea is like, it's like a, a guide, so to speak for helping people, or is it more just an analytical, um, this is what's going he's, on. He's a psychologist. He holds okay. an orthodox view of gender and sexuality. It is written from a faith perspective. Uh, it, he probably is going to be a little bit more, uh, it depends on the situation and on the people's particular values, then perhaps we might, you know, we might be in the church, you know? Okay. Um, but I think he, he would help lay the foundation that someone could say, okay, this is how I'm going to walk within, within, uh, my faith framework. Uh, I think he would, his work would help you to do that. Gotcha. That's great. Thank you. I, I just, I recognize the enormity of this conversation and I really appreciate you taking time, Janet, to come on and dealing with my kind of fumbling around uh, with even the words I use, but I think it's important for us to have these conversations and for people to find helpful resources like you and like the resources that you offer and then the ones that you've mentioned as well, changing gears entirely. You know, my podcast is called more to the story and as often because there's a one side, a theological side, that there's more than just being forgiven to the Christian life. I think there's a journey and experience of yes. sanctification. But at the same time, I know there's often more to the story of people that they don't often get to tell on a podcast interview. Uh, it, like maybe they like the scuba dive or there's something else that's in, interesting in their life. Uh, so is there more to the story of Janet Dean? Wow. Uh, I'm sure there is. I, I am a huge college football fan. So and you're a big fan of guys. Michigan, right? I think oh, Michigan. Oh, it's a oh. bad word. It's a bad <laughs> word. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Uh, <laughs> I also um, am, an, am an amateur, very amateur 
photographer. Okay. And so I, I love just being out in nature and capturing just glimpses of the glory of God's created nature, um, mm. particularly the mountains. I love the mountains. And so, but other than that, um, you know, what is there to know about me? You know, I'm, I'm here. Um, I, we could say a first generation college student, let alone yeah. the other things um, coming out of a background that um, I really shouldn't be here except for the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just amazed every single day at what he has done in my life and what he's called me to do. And um, I, I don't understand it. I kind of feel like Moses, you know, who am I? Or Jeremiah saying, but I'm so young. I don't know how to speak. Yeah. And, and yet being able to participate and partner with God in a way where you see him constantly showing up, right? There's yeah. just nothing like it. Oh, I love it. Janet, thank you so much. And I'm just so thankful for the research that you've done and the academic work and the clinical work you've done that's made you somebody who is so ready to help people like me and people all over the churches we're dealing with uh, uh, sexual revolution and its impact on society and the church. So thank you for coming on the podcast. It means so much to me to have Um, you on here. It's always good to be with you, Andy.